0: We'll hear argument next this morning in Case 09223, Levin, the Tax
1: Commissioner, versus Commerce Energy. Mr. Meiser. Mr. Chief Justice, and may I please the Court. Respondents are natural gas suppliers who object to the way Ohio taxes them. Their suit belongs in State Court rather than Federal Court for two independent reasons. First, principles of comedy and Federalism dictate that the State Courts should resolve challenges to the validity of their own tax laws, And second, the Tax Injunction Act squarely prohibits Federal courts from issuing declaratory judgments holding State tax laws unconstitutional. Although either of these grounds would independently support reversal of the Sixth Circuit here, the analysis can really begin and end with the comedy doctrine, because that is where the lower courts have shown confusion in the way — Before you get into that, I have a question
0: that there may be an obvious answer to, but I haven't found. My understanding is, it's a standing question. MY UNDERSTANDING IS THAT THEY ARE ASKING AS RELIEF, AND ONLY RELIEF THEY ASK FOR, IS TO RAISE THE TAXES OF A COMPETITOR. AM I RIGHT? THAT IS HOW THEY have THE CASE. IF THAT'S CORRECT, I HAVE FOUND NO CASE, BUT I HAVEN'T LOOKED THAT HARD, BUT CERTAINLY NO CASE IN THIS COURT, THAT SAID THERE IS STANDING FOR A FIRM TO CHALLENGE THE TAXES OF A COMPETITOR WHERE THE REMEDY IS RAISE HIS TAXES. IF THERE WERE STANDING FOR SUCH A THING. I'm surprised that there aren't competitors all over the country doing business out of state, bringing diversity cases in federal court, saying my competitors' taxes should increase. It's all very complicated, but the Commissioner didn't properly follow state law. Now, I have found no case, certainly not in this Court, which uh, said where all you want is to raise the tax of a competitor you have standing. So perhaps this is well settled that you can do it. But uh, I thought I'd raise that for both of you at the beginning in case there's something you want to say about it, which might
1: save me a little time looking it all up. Well, I, I think there's a good reason that there, there aren't cases in the federal courts to that effect. But it's not a standing problem. And, and to address the standing point directly, it's because they, they do claim an injury that's cognizable. Under Dennis versus Higgins, they're claiming a dormant commerce clause injury. I have no doubt. And the standing rule, I think, is clear. That if we're saying, because
0: I am injured and they have injury, you can't. You must give me a reduction in my tax. That's what those cases have. No problem with that. Absolutely clear. You can do it. But where all you want is to raise somebody else's taxes, that I had thought, and probably wrongly, but I had thought there is a prudential standing rule that says you cannot bring such a lawsuit. And I don't see why you should be able to. That seems to me would be a nightmare if you could, which doesn't surprise. So there we are. That's the question. And you will tell me, no, it's all clear they can do it. And I'd like some citation or something and explain
1: why they should be able to do it. You don't want to anyway. It's really for them. I'm not aware of any prudential standing rule, Your Honor, or any case, but that's because the Tax Injunction Act and the Comedy Doctrine have always prohibited such a case, and so that's why there's a lack of citation. In, well, I suppose in,
2: the, in discrimination cases, if there's a discrimination, um, men versus women, uh, one way to resolve it would be to uh, have either, either rule apply to, all, to, to both sides.
1: That's right, and the Court has said that in cases like Davis and McKesson, where a a tax credit has been struck down as unconstitutional for either dormant commerce clause or equal protection reasons, and this Court in Davis and McKesson said, well, you can extend the credit if you wish, or you can also contract the credit. But either way —
3: On the other hand, until the Administrative Procedure Act was enacted, which which eliminated all prudential uh, bars to standing, uh, it — clearly uh, was the law that you could not complain about uh, preference, unlawful preference, being given by the government uh, under regulatory provisions to a competitor. The law was you — that's tough luck. There was no standing. And I — and that was a prudential rule, I assume. And I don't know why it's any different from the tax rule.
1: And cases would have existed challenging state tax laws uh, regardless of the APA for federal challenges because in uh, and, and those cases all would have existed in the state courts because that is where state tax laws and state administrative procedures are best challenged. The the rule of comedy holds that the federal courts should not entertain a challenge to a state tax law where that challenge would either disrupt the operation of the state tax regime or would intrude into the meaning or application of the state tax law both of those elements are true here this suit is disruptive because the suit goes to the very core
4: is unclear here that would require federal interpretation
1: at pages 27 to 33 of the blue brief we identify all of the ways in which the the parties, the state and the respondents, dispute the application and meaning of state tax law, particularly as to what taxes should be compared for um, the apples and oranges purposes. And the tax, the Ohio tax question that's at issue is what is a franchise tax versus what is a state tax? There's also the disruption of the application of state tax law here, because any remedy that would be afforded would necessarily alter the way that the state can, can tax.
4: So why can't the Pullman Doctrine or the Buffett Doctrine, abstention doctrines, be enough to counsel federal abstention in this case? Why do we have to create another exception to Hibbs? And not go to another established abstention doctrine.
1: The court doesn't have to create anything, Your Honor, because Fair Assessment and Great Lakes already say that the Burford and Pullman principles get sort of bonus points in the tax context. So why didn't you
4: did you argue Pullman in the court below?
1: The yes, the 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 principles of abstention were argued in the district court and. I don't
4: know. Did you cite Pullman and did you? I don't ARGUE know. it on a Pullman abstention basis.
1: To be frank, I don't know if Pullman was was specifically cited, but that's because fair assessment itself, which was heavily cited in the lower courts, incorporates the principles of Pullman and Burford and says that these tax questions raise — that these tax challenges raise questions about the meaning of, of state law, about the um, operation of a complicated regulatory regime, and so they are better left to the state courts. The, um, the, the application of the state law here is particularly disruptive because the tax laws being challenged intersect integrally with the regulatory regime. Just to give one example, among the taxes that respondents are objecting to is the gross receipts tax, which public utilities, the local distribution companies, pay but the uh, but the non-public utilities like respondents do not pay the gross receipts tax is relevant on both the tax and regulatory side of the ledger because it's a tax but it's then also a cost that as we explain at page six of the blue brief may be included in the gas cost recovery formula for the rates that the public utilities may charge their customers and those rates are approved by the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. So if the gross receipts tax is eliminated, it will affect the regulatory side of things as well. And that distinguishes this case from Hibbs.
5: Do you think it's it's correct in, in relation to Hibbs? Is it accurate to say that you think that this case is different from Hibbs for essentially three reasons? That this one involves a complicated analysis of state law and Hibbs did not. That this one would uh, potentially have a substantial financial effect on the State, and in Hibs that would not happen. And this case involves claims under the Dormant Commerce Clause and Equal Protection rather than the Establishment Clause. Is that — are those — does that capture it or is there something more?
1: The first two especially capture it, Your Honor, and I think the third point um, is really just an additional explanation of the first two points, because in an Establishment Clause challenge like Hibbs, um, the — the remedy is often going to be very simple. In Hibbs, for example, there was a credit being challenged, and the Federal Court could simply pull the thread of that credit, and the, the rest of the fabric of the Arizona tax scheme would remain intact. Here, by contrast, if the thread of the gross receipts – sorry, of the sales tax and the commercial activities tax is pulled, the fabric of the state taxation and regulatory regime will unravel. Well, suppose if, if this – you have a dormant commerce clause
5: claim – And it doesn't require a complicated analysis of State law. You have different rates of taxation, let's say, for two different categories of entities. And it's really not a very important tax credit, so pulling the thread isn't going to have much effect. Then this case, then the case would come out differently. Comedy
1: would not bar that action. I think it would be a much closer case, Your Honor. But still, there would be an interest in allowing the state courts to resolve that challenge because, as the Court has explained, when uh, a state court is is trying to address a constitutional challenge that involves the application of state law, it can ev- engage in constitutional avoidance in ways that the federal courts cannot. The state... State courts also have greater competency, of course, with their own tax law, and they have a greater remedial um, panoply available to them. So in your hypothetical, Justice Alito, the the federal court could not order a decrease in the taxes of the challenger because that, as Hibbs explains, would be revenue depleting, whereas if it were in state court, the state courts could decrease the revenue, sorry, decrease the taxes of the challenger, and then that would allow the State Courts most naturally to remedy this. Let's
4: assume a State had a law that said we're going to do different tax schemes for African-Americans than for whites. Um, and they do exactly what's done here. They're going to tax on one thing, but not on another. They're going to give an exemption in one area, but not another. Um, is that a case that would have to be an equal protection challenge that would have to be decided in State Court?
1: Fair assessment says in footnote four that if it doesn't if — if such a challenge doesn't require scrutiny of the meaning and application of State law, then it may uh, — fair assessment suggests that such a case might be able to proceed in Federal Court. But if the, if the challenge does require scrutiny of, of State law or uh, resolution of of unclear State law questions, then it should be in State court, and there's no reason — I
4: don't know if that's an answer to my question or not. I — the only thing I changed in the hypothetical was that the challenge was an equal protection challenge based on um, a suspect classification. But the credit system is no different. Would or would not that require —
1: I see, Your Honor. And if it were equally complicated — then it is a challenge that should go to the State Courts, because there's no doubt that the State Courts can handle Federal constitutional questions, and along the way, they might be able to construe the State law in a way that avoids the Constitutional shoals.
2: And you reach that conclusion under the comedy principles of fair assessment?
1: I do, but also because the Tax Injunction Act would uh, exclude the case if it would have revenue-depleting effects Re- on the Depleting. On the state coffers, and the remedy might, in that case, have such an effect if, if the uh, if the result is to tilt the balance heavily against uh, a party who then needs to have its own taxes. Addressed. I'm, I'm
2: what, curious uh, to know why neither opinion in Hibbs addressed the comedy principle, and I'd uh, like your view on that. I know what you're thinking. Your answer is, "Well, you tell me." But uh, uh, why wasn't that addressed in, in your view?
1: Well, it was fully briefed in Hibbs, and that is, I think, why the Court addressed comedy in footnote 9. And footnote 9 of Hibbs simply says that uh, the comedy doctrine doesn't cover such a challenge. And the explanation, I think, of footnote 9 is that the Court cited both fair assessment and Great Lakes. And those cases stand for the proposition that when a a tax challenge has a a disruptive effect uh, for all practical purposes on the collection our administration of the state tax regime then comedy bars it, and so when uh, the court in footnote nine of Hibbs said challenges are barred by comedy if they arrest or countermand state tax collection, it was it was speaking about the kind of cases that. Wasn't issue.
6: brought up in, comedy wasn't brought up in Hibbs because if the if there was an alleged constitutional violation, uh, then there was only one way to go, the parochials. The payments to the parochial schools could not be uh, it had; had to be eliminated. So there was no question of extension versus invalidation or doing something else that was fancy. That's that's why this case is nothing like that because it was only one way to only one cure. But you mentioned here there were various things what the federal court could is is being asked to uh, increase somebody else's taxes. That's a very strange notion. But what could the State Court do? The same case in State Court, and let's assume there is a constitutional violation, either the Commerce Clause or the Equal Protection, what could the State Court do that the Federal Court couldn't?
1: I think there are three options available to the State Court. First, it could decrease the, the taxes on the challengers, even if they don't. Um, ask for such a decrease. They could also increase the challenges, the taxes on the local distribution companies. Or they could do what the Ohio Supreme Court has done in the education context, for example, which is to declare unconstitutionality and then leave it for the General Assembly, the Ohio Legislature, to fix the problem and then uh, come back with a remedy. If, uh, If that kind of relief were ordered by the Federal Court, it would mean Federal Court oversight, essentially, of Ohio budgetary processes, which this court has repeatedly. Well, may I come
5: back to your answer to Justice Ginsburg's question? Would it be beyond the ability of the Arizona courts, had that case been, had Hibbs been brought in Arizona, to hold that under whatever principles of severability, uh, Arizona has the, the tax credits for some private schools, uh, could not be stricken without striking the entire provision?
1: I think the entire provision would have to be stricken in Hibs because of the nature of the as-applied challenge there. They were saying that all of the money was going to private schools, that private religious um, The schools. point
5: is that, the, that one possible, if there was an Establishment Clause violation, one remedy would be to prohibit credits for payments made to religiously affiliated schools but allow the credits for other private schools but uh, under principles of severability? Couldn't an Arizona Court say that can't be severed from the, from allowing the credits for payments to secular private schools?
1: That's probably right, Your Honor. And the, what it illustrates is that uh, often State courts have available to them remedies that Federal courts may not, particularly when plaintiffs have pleaded the case in such a way as to tie one hand behind the Federal court's back.
5: Doesn't that suggest Hibbs should have come out the other way?
1: Well, to be frank, Your Honor, the State of Ohio joined an amicus brief urging the opposite outcome in Hibbs, but we're not urging the overrule of Hibbs here. We think that uh, even on Hibbs's own terms, the Tax Injunction Act applies here to preclude this challenge in federal court. And to return to
2: Justice. Just one more. If the, the remedy is likely to be, we'll leave it up to the legislature. You had, you had two or three different optional remedies. Um, would... We say that that is an adequate state remedy.
1: Yes, I believe so, Your Honor. Because uh, so long as the the challenger would be able then to to seek some sort of um, contempt action if the if the remedy were not um, confined con, con, contempt of the legislature. Contempt, did you say? Of of the the tax commissioner. If the tax commissioner is continuing to collect unconstitutionally unbalanced taxes, then I should think that there, there should be some enforceability there. But the adequacy of the challenge uh, available uh, is, is measured, as this Court explained in Rosewell, purely by procedural um, measures. And so, for in, in Rosewell, the question was whether or not the parties could go to State Court and would um, procedurally be able to get access to State Court to resolve their claim. And that is clearly true, and no one contests that here. The, to return to Justice Sotomayor's question about the, the racial cases, That may seem troubling if a racial challenge is excluded from federal court, but but there's no doubt that state courts can resolve such claims, and in fact, the Ohio Supreme Court handles tax cases as a routine matter.
6: Weren't the cases running up to Hibbs, I mean, those were all cases that involved racial discrimination, and they were in the federal courts.
1: They were, Your Honor, and in in every case that uh, we have examined, one of two things was true. Either the party was claiming uh, standing not based on the fact that he himself was subject to unconstitutional taxes, or the party was not did not have an adequate remedy in the state courts. For example, in the Griffin case, this Court said that the problem was that in Virginia nothing was being done to remedy the, the unconstitutional burdens imposed there. And so the lack of an adequate remedy, both under the comedy doctrine and under the Tax Injunction Act, allowed the plaintiffs there to access to the Federal courts. And so the, the comedy rule that we are advocating, which is clearly laid out in both Fair Assessment and Great Lakes, would not have any effect on those cases because of the lack of an adequate remedy. Is
0: there anything I, I see in their complaint they ask for such other relief to which plaintiffs are entitled? and therefore the judge, despite what they say, might just say, well, what you're entitled to is you're entitled to pay fewer taxes. Is that, is that a plausible thing? In which case, it would interfere with the revenue collection of the state. We is think — What is — what your — you better give me your accurate assessment, not just agree with me, because I'd like to know what you — I want to know both
1: sides. The Tax Injunction Act would bar the Court, I think, from entering an order that says the taxes on the challengers are decreased, which illustrates the reason that uh, the State of Ohio, with its sovereign interest in its own tax policy — uh what yeah, I have no idea of and why
0: I'm asking the question is I have no idea or little idea of the underlying State law merits. And my suspicion is, in about 10 or 15 minutes, I will hear that the State law merits are such that it's virtually impossible that they're going to say to us, pay fewer taxes. Rather, they'll say to our competitors, pay more taxes. So now is your chance to reply to that hypothetical argument, just in case they make it.
1: Well, first of all, Your Honor, the, uh, the, the merits of this case are very much like the merits of General Motors Corporation versus Tracy, which this Court decided about 13 years ago. Uh, but the the merits also illustrate the complexity of any remedy that, that would be ordered in this case. Because if it's so simple as the Federal Court simply saying that the local distribution companies, the public utilities, now must pay the sales tax and the commercial activities tax, then suddenly those entities would be subject to five taxes, a, a much greater burden than is imposed on the respondents. And then the General Assembly would have to go back to the drawing board to adjust the taxes on the local distribution companies. So even if the simple remedy that they asked for is entered by the Federal Court, still the State of Ohio has to respond by readjusting its sales tax and its commercial activities tax. And in that event, it first of all could easily end up in a net revenue loss for the coffers of the State of Ohio. It also would mean that the regulatory side of things would be affected, which brings us back to the Burford principles we discussed earlier, because the the taxes, as I said, are integrally connected to the way Ohio regulates public utilities, and those public utilities have obligations to a captive market that the respondents don 't have to meet. they serve customers in their area no matter what, whereas respondents don 't yes, have but to this
3: but this doctrine i 'm not very sympathetic to that argument because this is a doctrine that is directed to the State collecting taxes, not to interfering with State regulation. That's that's a a different doctrine.
1: But, Your Honor, I think that Great Lakes and Fair Assessment um, stand for the proposition that when a Federal Court issues an order that uh, invalidates a State tax law, that has a disruptive effect on the collection of taxes, and that would be true here because the State of Ohio would no longer be able — would not be able to collect five different taxes from local distribution companies without being — turning around and facing a new challenge on, on the unconstitutional unconstitutionality of that burden by the local distribution companies. And so the, the complicated nature of the tax regulation interplay here is all the more reason that this case belongs in State Court, for the State Courts to resolve uh, those interconnected questions in ways that they are fully equipped to answer the uh, the other factor that was relevant to the court's analysis i'm just a little
7: puzzled about
1: the i think you're you're giving the state court an awful lot of power
7: can it do it without new legislation i mean you have to adjust these other taxes maybe the expenses they deduct in their regulatory filings and all the rest but i don't know that the state court has any more authority to grant a
1: judicial remedy than the Federal Court would have. The State Court might be able to enter a remedy, Justice Stevens, that's so simple as enjoining the sales tax exemption and the commercial activities tax exemption for local distribution companies, and then also saying that uh, because the LDCs have to pay those taxes, they no longer have to pay the gross receipts tax and the other two taxes that are imposed on them—that's an order that the federal court couldn't issue because, under principles of both uh, the Tax Injunction Act and the—and yes, but
7: the Tax Injunction Act goes to the authority, of the jurisdiction of the court to entertain the case in the first place. I'm not sure the Ch- Tax Injunction Act prohibits the remedy uh, that you describe, because there's a difference between filing the suit and
1: entering relief after the suit's been filed? With respect, Your Honor, I think that that Grace Brethren squarely stands for the proposition that a federal court shouldn't enter an order uh, that says that the state tax law is — that declares the state tax law unconstitutional and then enjoins it. And that's exactly what would be required in order to eliminate the uh, additional taxes on local distribution companies. And that analysis is done at the front end. Um, not at the end, after the court has resolved the constitutional merits, and then says, "Well, I guess I'm not able to enter the order that uh, is, makes the most sense here to resolve the constitutional question." If there are no further questions, I'd like to res- reserve the balance.
4: Thank you, Counsel.
1: Thank you,
8: Mr. Fitch. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Justice Breyer, if I can go directly to your question with respect to standing. Standing has never been raised in the. That's all right,
0: it's a jurisdictional matter.
8: I understand it, uh, Your Honor, but because it has never been raised, uh, I do not have a good answer for you. What I can say to the Court is that in Hibbs, recognizing Hibbs was an establishment clause claim, the Court struck down a credit. Yeah, there's a recent case out of the First Circuit in Coors where CORS reversed their prior case out of — involving the Butler Act out of uh, Puerto Rico, and that involved beer distributors challenging a credit or an exemption that Puerto Rico was — But
0: they they might want — see, in all the Court's cases, the the challenger wanted — he said, I don't care. Either make them pay or give me my money back. Well — So that should be your case, I would have thought. But But you're not saying it so you can get into Federal Court. Now, that's — that's how I read it, uh, and uh, uh, that seems uh, — uh, that's worrying to me.
8: Well, Justice Friar, and — so what I would say is that
0: in the Establishment Clause, I'd add, uh, there's a lot of reason for thinking it's special in respect to standing, because there's no other way to challenge uh, the Establishment Clause, and that's a long, festering disagreement. Uh, within this court, but I'm not sure you can apply these rules to everything else.
8: And I understand that, Your Honor. And, and I guess the point that I'm trying to make is because that issue was not raised based upon HIBS, based upon a decision on CORS, we did not see a standing issue based upon this competitive situation you're talking about. If, in fact, that is an appropriate question for additional briefing, we would obviously. But you see what's worrying, that what's worrying
0: me is, is there are businesses all over the country, and there's federal stat- tax law, too. There, and there are, suddenly people begin to think, hey, this is a terrific idea. I'm going to go through my competitors' tax returns. Well, and I will discover taxes they should have paid but didn't. And all of a sudden we'll face uh, a, a lot of lawsuits challenging other people's taxes. No, no, I, I would that's, just, that's what's worrying.
8: Okay. And I would disagree with you, Justice Breyer, for, for this reason. There are already substantial limitations on when this type of case can be brought. We start with the TIA. It it says if we are — we can't restrain the collection of taxes. We have the abstention doctrines that have been mentioned. We have the fact that the Court in a merit situation has to give deference to uh, the States. And so the point I'm trying to make is that we believe this is a very narrow window. There is only a very narrow window open. What we are doing is challenging an exemption granted to a competitor.
6: Is with
0: the other cases, what do you think of the other half of their argument? I say I have to think about the standing thing, see if right. I want to press it or not. But the, the, the other half is, look at your case. Your case would just be like Bacchus, like the other cases, if you just said give us a refund, as they did in the other cases. But you haven't said that, because that would run afoul of the Tax Injunction Act. That's Rather, what you've said is raise their taxes. Well, so the point of the state is, now, wait a minute. Leaving all of the things aside, you asked for other appropriate relief. And it's highly probable in such situations that a court could, would say give, give the and, and say, give them the exemption. And if it's going to say, give them the exemption, hey, this is now not within Hibs. So what's your response to that?
8: Your Honor, I don't, as, as my friend Mr. Miser said, I don't believe a court could say give them the exemption. I know. That would be a violation of the TIA. No, 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 there's a if lot the of things they could say. If it yeah. interrupt, it would impede the collection of taxes. Of course. The state court. Of course.
0: Court. Absolutely right. That's okay. what's worrying me. That isn't the answer. That's the question. And, and the, 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 it's, it's what Justice Kennedy said in respect to discrimination problems. Usually either remedy is at issue. YOU CAN'T CONTROL THE REMEDY BECAUSE YOU ASKED FOR ALL OTHER APPROPRIATE RELIEF. ERGO, IT FALLS AFOUL OF THE TAX INJUNCTION ACT. WHAT'S YOUR RESPONSE TO THAT?
8: AND I, I, I'M SORRY, JUSTICE BREYER. We, WE ARE SAYING THAT IF WE ask FOR THE OTHER RELIEF, IF WE ask FOR US TO GET THE EXEMPTION,
0: THAT WOULD IMPEDE STATE- YOU DIDN'T ASK ONLY FOR THE OTHER RELIEF. YOU ASKED FOR SUCH OTHER RELIEF. To which plaintiffs are
8: entitled, we and what inc- they
0: say. Now, I'd repeat the argument. We, okay. we, we
8: did Im- include that phrase. The relief we are seeking, Your Honour, is the declaratory relief and reju- injunctive relief that we have spelled out with respect to the exemption. The I think your, the, I think your
3: answer is that relief that would violate the Tax Injunction Act mm-hmm. is not appropriate relief. That's and correct. Not covered by your
8: by it, your plea. And, and that was right. not what we yeah. were seeking. Makes sense to me. Uh,
6: Well, there's another little problem. (laughs) Do you know of any case where a benefit that A enjoys is taken away from A in a suit where A is not a party? you're, You're fighting the Ohio Tax commissioner. You want to take a benefit away from these LDCs, but they're not in the suit. Don't — isn't there a little due process problem with that? The
8: response, uh, Justice Kosenberg is this. Number one, in part it takes away a tax benefit from the LDC. In part it takes away a tax benefit from the customers of the LDC. I know that doesn't make us any more sympathetic, but the sales tax is paid by the customer. Now, with respect to the joinder of necessary parties — The motion that was filed by the state, which started all of this three years ago, after our complaint, also included a motion to dismiss for failure to join necessary parties. That has also never been addressed. Uh, we, We responded to that. The Court decided not to refer to it. We made an argument that it was not necessary, in this case, to join the ODCs. The Court just deferred. And did not rule.
6: what was that argument that you're taking a benefit you're, you're saying the only relief we want is to take this benefit away from people who are not in the lawsuit
8: Well, our argument was uh, simply your honor, that we are challenging the exemption issued by the state if the uh, two, two points quickly if the LDCs, at that time four, now two, were wanted to be involved. They could certainly move to intervene. The second point was if the Court of Course ruled that they were necessary parties, then we would have the opportunity to well, join. In them.
5: Hibs were all the beneficiaries of the provision that was challenged? I'm sorry. in Hibbs were were all of the beneficiaries of the provision that was challenged parties in that case? They were not, Your Honor. They were not. Uh, Is there a due process problem there because
8: of that? uh, I cannot identify a due process problem there, Your Honor. Uh, There's an issue that's been raised by several of the justices I'd like to address, I think Justice Stevens in particular, with respect to what if this went to state court? And I would disagree uh, uh, with my friend. Uh, If this went to state court, we believe that under state law and the education uh, cases that Mr. Meiser was referring to, it's called the DeRoff case, and we have the citation if the court uh, would like it. What the court said was, once we declare the matter unconstitutional, our job was at an end, that it had to go back to the legislature. We challenged the proposition raised in the amicus brief and raised today, the notion that if this was in a state court, that a state court could go rewrite this You, you, you conceded — I'm sorry. You conceded
3: below, <coughs> to quote footnote two of the opinion below, uh, that there is
8: an adequate State Court remedy available. In State Court. We, oh. we conceded that we could bring this action in State Court. We could seek the injunction in State Court. We could seek, seek the declaratory uh, judgment in State Court, but when we speak to remedy — the point that we are trying to make, your Honor, because it is the remedy where the federal court interpeer- interference becomes the greatest, what we are saying is we do not believe a state court has necessarily broader remedies and are so you 're claiming
4: that the federal court could only pow- only power would be to declare it unconstitutional and send it back to the state legislature to decide what to do, or you're claiming the Federal Court has a power the State Court doesn't have, which is to order the exemption to be
8: rescinded? I'm not sure what your point is. Okay. point, Your Honor, is this. We believe that the Federal Court and the State Court would have the power to declare under the Dormant Commerce Clause equal protection clause that this exemption is unconstitutional, that either Court could at that point enjoin uh, prospectively the uh, operation uh, of that exemption. The question then becomes what happens then?
0: So then, in your, in your opinion, your next-door law firm next to you brings a case and says Mr. Fitch should pay $1,000 more taxes next year because he deducted $2,000 that was uh, illegal. You see that? You see? Now, now, I'm trying to bring it home.
8: I have something <laughs> wrong
0: with this picture. <laughs> and I'm, and, I, and, I, and I, I that's and I can't quite put my finger on it. And yeah,
3: your next door neighbor has to be a competitor of yours before yeah. it would I, be an exact parallel, right?
8: I believe that is correct, yeah. uh, Justice. I mean, your next door neighbor
3: in your business, which is a yes. competing law firm.
8: Yes, but but uh, if if I can try to bring that point home, because well, I think they was, don't
0: actually bring you into the
8: case. <laughs> <laughs> if I could try to bring that point home, Justice Sotomayor. What we're saying is that we are asking the federal court to rule on the constitutionality on f- federal claims enjoying this exemption, and the court's work is at an end at that point. What we believe will
6: happen at that point is that the legislature will be faced with a choice. Why should, How it, why should the federal court make that choice? I mean, in the, in the federal cases where extension versus invalidation has come up, Those were all Federal laws. And the Court said, in the interim, we're going to extend the benefit. We're not going to take away benefits from anyone. Every one of those cases, they extended the benefit benefit until, unless and until Congress acts. But there was some comfort there because they were dealing, the Federal Court's dealing with Federal legislation. It seems to me that, that there is that choice. The state courts are much better equipped to say what should happen in the interim until the legislature acts.
8: We do not believe that the federal court could extend that benefit. I think we're in agreement there, (laughs) Justice Ginsburg. The the, the state court could? We question whether the state court could. We question whether, if the state court found it was unconstitutional, whether under Ohio law, a state court could extend that benefit. We think this is a legislative issue, and I, there's a point I need to make, because in the briefs and in the argument today, they're saying there are two choices. The two choices are you either uh, extend the exemption uh, to uh, everyone or you eliminate the exemption. I need to make this point tie in to Mr. Meiser's comments about regulation. There's another option, which is the regulatory option. What we are dealing with here is our utility matters it may be that the legislature opts on a regulatory basis to eliminate this problem and that goes to footnote we the footnote we have in our brief but, but that raises
7: another another problem for me your basic standing is you similarly situated competitors one is being taxed and the other is not but you're really not similarly situated competitors because they're regulated utilities and you're unregulated no. Isn't that right?
8: No, Your Honor. No, Justice Stephen, that's, that is not correct, and that's the whole basis for our filing this complaint. If you look at the complaint, that's what the court said in General Motors versus Tracy. Right. What, our, what our complaint lays out is the sea change of change. We have gone from a regulated situation to essentially an unregulated uh, situation on the gas commodity piece. There are two pieces. There's delivery. There's gas commodity. The gas commodity piece has been essentially deregulated, and that's what the Court was focused on in Tracy. What our complaint very clearly lays out is we believe there has been a change, a factual change in circumstance that will result in a different ruling in Tracy.
3: Uh, Uh, Counsel, I I hate to introduce another uh, procedural glitch into this thing but uh, as i as i understand it the state's motion to dismiss was under under 12b1 which is a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction and that was granted by the court
7: Uh,
3: the tia is assuredly a jurisdictional statute but I had never thought that uh, the comedy doctrine was uh, a doctrine of jurisdiction. In fact, by, almost by definition, it says the Court has jurisdiction, but nonetheless should decline to exercise it. You didn't make that objection, though. I'm sorry, Your Honor. You did not make that objection.
8: We did not, uh, we did not make that objection, below. I do not believe. That is the entire discussion of Justice Brennan in his concurring opinion and fair assessment, and we think it's an extremely important uh, point. The district court has jurisdiction in this case. It has jurisdiction. The question is, does comedy, should comedy tell it not to use that jurisdiction? And what we're really fighting about here is what are those standards that a district court is going to use to decide whether to, to, to use comedy to not exercise that jurisdiction. And what we are saying, what we are saying in our case is Hibs did address comedy. The issue was before the court in comedy, and Hibbs said, and now four circuits have followed that ruling in Hib, as well as lower courts, and have said, if you are not seeking to impede state
6: tax collection, comedy does not bar it. But that's because there was only one way to go. Either the uh, benefit is removed or it's not. There wasn't the other possibility of decreasing the taxes on your clients. There wasn't an extension versus invalidation. It was if the constitutional claim was good, it had to be in Invalidated the credit had to be invalidated,
8: and and I think what we're trying to say, Justice Ginsburg, in our in, in our case, is we're not trying to seek invalidation. We we we're but we are not, not trying to seek
6: the benefit for us. It is not up to you to make that decision. It, if the state can go either way, I mean, in, in the extension versus invalidation cases, this court made it very clear. You could go one way or the other, and that was a decision for the court to make, not the litigant.
8: But, Your Honor, the, the point we're making is that some court, somewhere, has to make the decision of whether this exemption violates the dormant commerce clause in the equal protection case. And it was our judgment that the best uh, forum for that was in federal court. And again, and, I, and I, if I'm not responsive to your question, I apologize. But what we are saying is that we want to reach the merits on that question of constitutionality. And once that is done, the remedy is going to lie with the state. We are not going to ask the federal judge to decrease our taxes. We question whether a state judge could decrease our taxes. We want that declaration, and we want that injunction. That's what, that's what we are seeking in this case.
5: And we, do, you, do you recognize that, that comedy is broader than the Tax Injunction Act? And, and if it is, uh, how do you justify your argument that would essentially limit the comedy doctrine to the contours of the Tax Injunction Act?
8: Justice Alito, what the Court has said, uh, not only this Court, but the First Circuit said in Coors, is that uh, what the Sixth Circuit said is that comedy extends broader than the TIA. Uh, what they point to uh, repeatedly is fair assessment, because fair assessment dealt with damages. And it was on a comedy basis that the court held in fair assessment that you couldn't get around your own liability by bringing a damage claim. So there's one example. We believe to some extent National Private Truck Council is an example, because in National Private Truck Council, recall, we're dealing with a state court action, not a federal court action. And in National Private Truck Council, what the court held was under 1983, a state court, a, a federal court would not order, a state court was not obligated to grant injunctive relief, to grant an attorney's fees under 1988. And that was based on comedy. In that case, there was still an issue of tax collection and impeding tax collection, but certainly that appeared to us to be uh, at least an example of where comedy would be broader than TIA because the TIA didn't apply in uh, in National uh, Private Truck Council. Uh, There was reference to uh, Burford uh, before, as Justice Scalia mentioned. This is not an abstention case. There is no question of state law. It has to be uh, uh, interpreted here. There's no doubt who pays the tax and who doesn't pay the tax. There's no doubt who's an LDC and who's not an LDC.
7: Let me just go back to the, my question before. I understand your point about regulation and non-regulation, but, but your competitors are subject to a different t- taxing regime than you are. Is that correct? They are. And is it — is not the reason they're subject to a different taxing regime? Is it historically they were regulated util, utilities? Uh,
8: to, uh, to, to some extent, I believe that's correct, uh, Justice Stevens. But my response would be this. If we want to get into them, what taxes do they pay versus what taxes do we pay? That's a merits question. That's a merits question. Is this a compensatory tax? I mean, have we made our case, do they have a defense because they pay different taxes than we, do, than we do, and therefore the State should be permitted to do that? We'd like to reach that question, but that's a merits question. That's not a, uh, not a jurisdictional question. I think that the very question of what taxes you
4: compare and don't compare is a matter of interpreting State law. You don't think that the meaning of State law in terms of what's comparable or not is
8: not implicated by any of these questions? We we believe it is not, Justice Sotomayor. You can can look at the taxes and see who they uh, apply to. It it is not a a matter — I I strongly disagree with, with my counterparts. This is not a matter of interpretation. And one of the justices asked the question, Uh, about uh, was abstention, was Pullman, Uh, was Pullman ever raised? Uh, Pullman was never raised. My recollection is that in the original motion, they raised Younger, uh, but they quickly dropped Younger because there is no, you know, pending state state, uh, proceeding.
6: Uh, But the idea was that the Federal Court should abstain. Our abstention doctrines are not uh, the most easy to grasp. So, but they did bring up abstention.
8: Well, very early on, they raised it. They dropped it. It was. It was. It was not uh, not followed up on, uh, Your Honor. So, so the point we're, we're here's the point we're trying to make, <laughs> as we see it. We believe the footnote in Hibbs was correct. In all of the Court's prior cases, there has been an issue of a taxpayer trying to avoid their own tax and thus impede state tax collection. We read Hibbs to say, under the TIA or comedy, you are not precluded from original Federal Court jurisdiction if you are not attempting to impede State tax collection. We do not believe there is any significant difference between our case for that analysis and the the case in Hibs. And as I said, that we, we now have four circuits that have uh, followed that. But if I if I can bring this. And you together. say that there's no impeding of
4: state court process or taxes. Because neither a federal or state court could order the reduction of the exemption. That—that that is correct. That, that is. I mean, even though the practical consequence is that that's a remedy the state could choose or must consider. It—it it, it could, Your Honour. But, but that wasn't
8: but, an issue that, however, it that That's right, and the line it is it is repeated in a number of cases is the net effect, whether you're talking about the credit in Hibs or whether you're talking about the exemption in our case, is if the, court, if the court puts on that order and the legislature does not come up with a remedy, is that the State will have more money. In fact, it is a question to us why, since we have chosen to limit our remedies by seeking a Federal Court forum. Uh, Why
0: isn't this a a Hibbs? You read the foot. We could, the other side says, to read the footnote, not as destroying the comedy principle. You know, this is right on the merits. It still exists, comedy, and you could say a strong case for withholding the the, the federal court's uh, 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 jurisdiction on grounds of comedy or not hearing the case is that the natural remedy, which is to give you a refund. Is available in state court go apply for a refund. no problem and that's and, and the answer you know, and then you don't get into all the problem of trying to assess somebody else's liability, et cetera what's wrong with that precisely
8: the wrong with it, your Honor is because what we're trying to do is fix a problem The, the question is are we forced are, are we limited only to seeking a refund why not what we'
0: Because that's not. I mean, why not give it to the, up to you know, the state? You could say, "Give us a refund or raise their taxes, one or the, the other." What's wrong with that?
8: The point that we tried to to get across in our brief, Your Honor, mm-hmm. is that we are in a competitive situation where we are trying to solve the problem to follow the policy that's been adopted uh, in Ohio of freeing up this. Well, does it solve
0: the problem for you to get a refund? It does not. Why not? The,
8: the, the problem remains. Why? Well, the problem remains because the exemption still exists. Well, because no, no, no. A but so you, you
0: have it, too. They, they, they work it out so it equally applies to everybody, including your clients. So you're all on the same footing. Now, what's the problem with that?
8: And I, and I guess we have to be careful with the term refund, because what I'm saying is that we're dealing with primarily we, – we have three taxes we're dealing with. One of them is the sales tax. That's what's paid by the consumer. That would require all the consumers to seek, you know, refunds. It's much cleaner, in our view – to simply go and get a determination whether this exemption is con- unconstitutional. We've, we've foregone the, the request for damages. We've foregone the request for attorney's fees because we have not alleged the 1983 claim. We're trying to fix a problem. D- just prior if, if I can, in, in, in wrapping this up. We recognize — we recognize that this Court has competing interests, that it has to weigh in resolving this question. What we are trying to say is that, as I said a minute ago, if you put that in context, the context is there are numerous protections that are already in place for the State to protect them from Federal Court interference. And we believe that the decision in Hibbs and the circuits that have followed Hibbs strikes the proper balance for this reason. You, you — first of all, you protect state tax collection, which has been the historic concern of this Court. Second, the broad jurisdiction that Congress has given in uh, 1331, in a declaratory judgment statute, is harmonized with the historic comedy concerns. Third, the Court, as this Court spoke in in Hertz just very recently, as opposed to some vague intrusion test, you've got a clear test that a Court can apply early on to decide whether I got jurisdiction or not. And finally, the historic right of a plaintiff, which this Court has long recognized, if there is concurrent jurisdiction, the historic right of a plaintiff to choose the forum in which to have their claims adjudicated is preserved. If, if there are no further questions, I, I will yield my time. Thank you, Mr. Fitch. Th- thank you, members of the court. Mr. Miser, you have five minutes remaining.
1: First, on Justice Scalia's question about the um, 12B1 dismissal motion, this court, just a couple of terms, terms ago in the Sinechem case, said that the uh, that a Federal Court can answer questions of younger abstention before answering questions of Article III abstention. And so both of these — both the comedy and TIA questions in this case are threshold non-merits questions that can be reached under uh, — under the steel company approach.
3: Well, all threshold non-merits questions are jurisdictional questions?
1: No, the point isn't that they're jurisdictional. The point is that in Sinechem, the holding in Synachem, for instance, was what, that, what what is the case you're citing? It's um Sinechem versus Malaysian uh Malaysia International Shipping. And the holding was that the the uh forum non convenience volume anyway? I don't have a volume okay. number uh at the moment. But the the uh holding was that forum non convenience doctrine can be addressed before jurisdictional questions. And along the way the court said that uh, younger specifically said that younger can be answered before article 3 standing and
3: okay fine it can be answered before jurisdictional questions but you move to dismiss for want of jurisdiction well and, and, and that is not a basis for dismissal here uh, uh, the, the basis is failure to state a claim I guess on which a federal court can grant relief
1: but I anyway. Well, in any event, Your Honor, we do uh, submit that the Tax Injunction Act is a jurisdictional doctrine. That is so. Prevail. That, okay. And on Justice Stevens's question about the, um, the similarly situated or not similarly situated nature of public utilities and non-public utilities, Mr. Fitch has pointed to the continuing deregulation in the wake of General Motors Corporation versus Tracy. But uh, as the Ohio Supreme Court just explained in the Columbia Gas case that we cite in our briefs, that um, continuing deregulation does not change the the fundamental holding in tracy that when there is a, a regulatory burden imposed on a public utility to serve a captive market that makes that entity not similarly situated to other entities and the other point about tracy and columbia gas is that both of those challenges came up to this court, through the lower courts, through the state courts of Ohio, and so the state courts are perfectly capable of handling this case. Could
4: you answer your adversary's point that neither the federal nor the state courts would have the power to um, to order the reverse, to order the exemption to be eliminated vis-a-vis, or to order them to have the exemption? They are claiming that's a even in state court, that would not be a remedy that could be
1: ordered. I disagree with that contention, Your Honor. The Ohio courts have struck down tax credits on dormant commerce clause and equal protection gr- grounds, and so there is precedent for the Ohio courts dealing with a challenge like this. He provides no citation of the inability of can state courts. Can you give me the cite? Sure. Case? The uh, MCI Telecom Corporation versus Limbaugh is available at 625 Northeast 2nd. 597, and that's a 1994 Ohio case, Um, also SFA Folio Collections versus Tracy at 73, Ohio State 3rd, 119. The Sinochem citation, Justice Scalia, is at 549, United States 422. Have
0: you found any authority on the following proposition, that a plaintiff, an out-of-state company, uh, brings a suit in Federal Court where the normal relief would be to give him a refund? He says, I don't want a refund. I just want a declaration. I want you to declare this unconstitutional. Have you found any case like that?
1: Yes. I think Mr. Fitch was correct to cite the Coors Brewing and U.S. Brewers' cases out of the First Circuit. And those cases perfectly illustrate the point that Justice Alito asked about, which was the continuing scope of the comedy doctrine because... wait, wait, wait. Forget
0: comedy. Hmm? I'm just asking you — I want to read the right authority. I'm, uh, it, can a person, in other words, get around the Tax Injunction Act by pleading his claim and just saying, I don't want an injunction? All I want is a declaration. It seems to me that should have come up in history, so I have the First Circuit cases
1: to look at. Anything else? The, uh The First Circuit cases are the most on point, but the other sister circuits who've joined the First Circuit in the circuit split at issue in this case um, hold to the similar effect. And those Well, then why, why
0: don't they win? Because their first thing, they say declaration. They just want a declaration. A strike their second claim. All they want is a declaration
1: because of Grace Brethren, Your Honor. If we're talking about the Tax Injunction Act, Grace Brethren holds that even a declaration of unconstitutionality is problematic under the Tax Injunction Act. Thank you. Thank you,
8: Counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.